Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. We are in Revelation chapter one. Uh, this is part two of the of chapter one, and uh, we'll have a word of prayer and we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you as always for the opportunity to study your word. And Father, we ask you in these sessions, or I ask you, to open our hearts, minds, soul, spirit, body to your word, Father, that you would help us to come to more fully understand your Son and your purpose for our lives, Father, for what you have in store for us as we learn these events that are happening now, were happening then, and are going to continue happening, Father, as you bring this world to an end. Help us to understand this, Lord, as we get into this book. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We ask your Holy Spirit to guide us in our learning and that you be with us throughout each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in chapter 1. The last time we were talking about a Jewish prophet. Uh, and now John continues his vision uh, that he, you know, that uh, began in chapter 1. Uh, and he continues by, in his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You know, John's well-versed in prophetic text. He knows that Abraham was promised, I will most certainly bless you. I will most certainly increase your descendants to as many as there are stars in the sky. And he also remembers the messianic prophecy from Isaiah 49.2. And he knows it from the passage. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And then when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. Now, just, just like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, John is awestruck by what he sees. The vision of Jesus so overpowers John that he falls not just to his knees, but flat on the ground as though dead at Jesus' feet. You know, being dead is the lowest possible position you can have in relation to Jesus Christ. Flat on your face. Now, the audience of Revelation is meant to understand that the sight of Jesus at his second coming will similarly overpower his enemies. Now, there are a lot of people who claim to have, have had visions of God where he comes and speaks to them. Now, here in Revelation, I, I see what happens when the glory of the Almighty comes to speak with, with a person. Now, it doesn't create a touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy sensation. Now, from what I read in the book of Exodus throughout the prophets, being visited by by Jesus, or vision of God, they leave their audience awestruck with fear. Sometimes it knocks them unconscious. But just like with the other prophets, though, a comforting hand and a voice comes to reassure this the weakened human recipient. You know, I'm not saying I question them, but in a, yeah, I do. The vision of Jesus is followed with Jesus' pay giving a formal introduction and you have this to be understood by referring to Old Testament imagery. He placed his right hand upon me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
You know, showing, to show his power doesn't threaten believers. He puts his right hand, that's the hand of favor, on John and tells him, don't be afraid. Now, God introduced him to Isaiah with those very same words. But here, Jesus uses them to introduce himself. Now, while he was in the presence of the divine Christ, who, like the Father, is the first and the last, Isaiah 44, 6 and 48, 12, John was also in the presence of one who, for the sake of man, shared their fate and died, and who is now the living one. And by the way, if you ever have a Jehovah's Witness come come to your door, you know, bring them, you know, ask them. Here, you know, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. And they'll, they'll admit that it's Jesus Christ. Explain it to them. Explain to John that he is, he is Christ. <clears throat> but then refer them back to Isaiah 44, 6, where God the Father uses the same phrase and ask him who that is. See, they don't believe in the Trinity. And this is a good proof text. Not only that, you can do it from their Bible. You don't have to use yours. Ask, ask them to, for their Bible and show it to them in their Bible and ask them the question. Anyway, we're going to move on. The, who is now the living one. The living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. Now, that does it. The disciples, along with 500 people, were living testimony of the fact of the, fact of the actual resurrection of Jesus. You know, John's more doubly sure now. And Jesus goes on to say, I hold the keys to death and hell. Now, this is another identification piece. A key is an opening instrument. Keys in Jewish thought were a symbol of authority. Matthew 16:9. Now, hell or Hades designates the immediate state of the dead. It's a Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Sheol. Death has now lost its terror because Christ has gained the key so he can unlock the gates of the grave and lead the dead into eternal life. John probably surely remembered Ezekiel's prophetic words. Then you will know that I am God when I have opened your graves and made you to get up out of your graves, my people. Now that he has fully identified himself, both visually and verbally, Jesus wants to give his messages to John to be shared with the, with the Asian congregations. And it's remarkable here to notice how much went into the identification. You know, there's not going to be any mistake. This is from Jesus Christ. Now, here's some of John's own thoughts on that subject from 1 John chapter 4 about being certain. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then Jesus goes on to tell John, Write therefore the things which you saw, and the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass hereafter. So write down what you see. That's chapter 1. Write down what is now, that's chapters 2 and 3, and what will happen afterwards. That's chapter 4 until the end of the book of Revelation. 
That's important information if we want to understand the content of the text. Because John's to write down three different things. What he, what is, in other words, what he has seen, then what is now, and what will happen afterwards. You know, he's seen is the vision of Jesus. And that now part corresponds to John's own time at the end of the first century. The afterwards part corresponds to a time that is in the future. To that, the future to that of the time of John. And he's going to, Jesus is now going to start unveiling the meaning of his cryptic apparition. He says, here's the meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand. And of the seven golden menorahs, the seven stars are the angels of the seven messianic communities. And the seven menorahs are the seven messianic communities. You know, we talked about that just a little in our last session. You know, you don't have to worry about what stuff means in the Bible 99.99% of the time. Because somewhere else in the Bible, it's going to get explained to you. That's why it's important you take the full counsel of God. Old Testament, New Testament. And kind of know what all those books tell you. Now, the essential truth is that as Christ stands among the seven golden lampstands, he's standing in unbroken fellowship with the churches on earth. They may be persecuted, but he's standing there with them. At the same time, he holds them in his hand. You know, this pictures his keeping and protecting power of a church in persecution. Now, Jesus uses John to communicate with seven messianic congregations around the Aegean Sea. In each of these Greek cities, the Gentile disciples learned the Judaism of Jesus by following in the footsteps of Jesus' own Jewish disciples. Now, where did these congregations come from? How did Jewish disciples of Jesus of Nazareth come to populate these local assemblies? Why did the Jewish disciples even have to leave Israel? You know, these assemblies in Asia Minor were born through the work of Paul and Barnabas. Paul's background as an observant Jew born in the Gentile city of Tarsus made him a per- perfect tool to bring Messianic Judaism to this Mediterranean region. Not only was he well-versed in Jewish religion, culture, practices, and tradition, but he was very knowledgeable in Greek philosophy, religion, mores, and culture. You know, by the time Paul was beheaded in Rome, he had left behind him a great legacy of followers of the Master, a legacy born through his exemplary dedication and lifestyle, and it was nurtured through his letters. To leave Israel to bring Messianic Judaism to the nations was something Jesus had commanded his disciples to do. Just before his ascension, he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into disciples, immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, yes, even until the end of the age. You know, Mark relates this. Jesus' ordinance in the following words, and then he said, to, he said to them, as you go throughout the world, proclaim the good news to all creation. 
you know, to truly define the social position of these disciples of the rabbi from Nazareth, it's essential to understand what is meant by this praise good news that they were to proclaim. In Hebrew, the word for good news is besora. It is eukulion in Greek. That's where we get our English word gospel. Today, if we're to understand Jesus' command to his disciples concerning this besora, we must have understood how they understood it then. Considering the different instances where biblical prophets and writers use this expression, we find that the good news refers to the time when Jewish Messiah will reign over all the earth from a restored Jerusalem as the central spiritual and political nerve of civilization. It's at that time all nations will be subject to the Jewish king. They'll even bring tribute to Jerusalem. And in today's John, the Roman Empire ruled Jerusalem. To acknowledge anyone but the emperor as ruler was treason. And it was all the more subversive and dangerous to proclaim that the true king is Jesus from Nazareth, of all people, an itinerant rabbi who was re executed by the Roman Empire. And then to go on and proclaim he, he resurrected and he's eventually going to rule the world and including the Roman Empire from Jerusalem as its glorious capital, that's a very dangerous doctrine to go running around the countryside preaching or teaching. And it helps us understand why the Israeli disciples, they weren't so willing to leave the comfort and relative security of Israel to go to places where they were to proclaim, you know, such controversial ideas. And additionally, because... All those other countries didn't, didn't live by biblical Jewish food requirements. They didn't celebrate its established festivals. You know, for a Jewish disciple in the diaspora, everything was complicated, even weekly Sabbath observance. You know, it actually took persecution in Israel to send him on their way. Now, that persecution is related to us by Luke, Paul's scribes, biographer, doctor, and servant in the following words. Luke wrote, It was around this time that King Herod began arresting and persecuting certain members of the Messianic community, and he had James, John's brother, put to death by the sword. Then when Herod saw how much this pleased the Judeans, he went on to arrest Peter as well. It was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, you can imagine when that happened that the disciples' emotions, emotions had to have been a mix of fear and of excitement. You know, they probably remember Jesus' words when he said they will ban you from the synagogue. In fact, the time will come when anyone who kills you will think he is serving God. You know, it's already tough to be a follower of the rabbi from Nazareth in the first century. And because of the intense Domitian persecutions, the believers who fled Israel to the diaspora congregations probably felt like they were jumping from the frying pan into the fire. You know, you got to remember those persecutions were mainly caused by the unwavering allegiance of Jesus' followers, both Jew and Gentile, to the first and second of the Ten Commandments, which represented an unbearable challenge to Domitian's self-claims of godhood. And just like in the old days, 
God heard the cry of his children. And through the medium of Jesus' communications via John, he sent messages of encouragement, guidance, and warning to his people. When they received the messages, the Jewish disciples must have remembered the rabbinical teaching that when God sends his children in exile, he goes there with them. Now, there's a story I once heard that kind of illustrates the idea. It's about a father who punished his boy for misbehaving at the dinner table. You know, the father became so angry, he told his child he wasn't going to eat dinner, and he sent him up to sleep in the attic. Later, the father, you know, thought maybe he probably was a little more harsh than he should have been. Now, when his father went up in the attic to check on his son, he found him sleeping on the bare floor. So what did the father do? He just lay down beside him all night and used his arm as a pillow pillow for his son. You know, God always seems to be present in our afflictions in this manner. You know, on Mount Horeb, God tells Moses, you know, from the burning bush, go to Egypt. Hebrew text says, come to Pharaoh. Why is he in Egypt? Well, here's what the text tells us. God said, I have seen how my people are being oppressed in Egypt and heard their cry for release from their slave masters because I know their pain. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that country to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Kenites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Yes, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen how terribly the Egyptians oppressed them. See, God sees the oppression his children are subjected to. He sees their tears. He hears their cries. You know, he doesn't just loftily look down from somewhere above. He comes down to their rescue. And with this understanding and that of the good news according to the Old Testament, now, we can imagine the surprise that John had at the apparition of Jesus on the island of Patmos. You know, just like in the days of Moses, just like Moses felt, John probably felt that deliverance was at hand. You know, therefore, the messages that Jesus is about to give to his congregations around the Aegean Sea are a reinforcement of the fact that as with the children of Israel in the days of the Exodus, the judges, even of Queen Esther, and of the Maccabees. They're not alone. They're not forsaken. It's to might remind them that the rock in which they trusted was dependable and available, that he did not fail and he will not fail. It's also to remind them that their destiny was part of the great cosmic plan of histories. You know, the Jewish disciples were familiar with the stories of the Babylonian exile. They remembered how God confirmed his presence with them through a slew of prophets. Some were in the land, like Jeremiah. Some were in the provinces of Babylon, Ezekiel. Some were even in the palace of the Babylonian ruler, like Daniel. You know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel were the main ministers of God's word to give guidance and encouragement to his people in exile. As it was then, so it was in the narrative of God's children in the first century. Jesus' Jewish disciples became the ministers of God's word for the congregations. And like the Israelites of old, 
they had lost all political, social, and economic clout in their society. So the Jewish disciples taught their Greek brothers and sisters about the exodus from Egypt. They taught about the Babylonian exile and about all the times that God showed his mighty hand in favor of his people. And you know, John was the last disciple still alive at that time. He's on the island of Patmos, which is a forced labor camp for dissenters and political prisoners. And what does God want to tell his people? What can he tell them that would give them hope and guidance? Yeah, it seems like today, just as it was in the time of John, we live in a world where it's becoming more and more controversial to live according to the laws of the Old Testament as taught by Jesus. So my question to you is this. Do these messages have something relevant for us too? You know, his, his address to each of the seven congregations is tailored according to their geopolitical as well as economic realities. Should it seem strange that the agent of creation is able to c- connect with his congregations in such a manner? Try to imagine yourself as one of these Gentile believers who has been grafted into the destiny of Israel through the agency of the king and Messiah of the Jews. As you hear these words from Revelation, you now realize that God, you know, this foreign God of the Jews, he knows you personally. He knows where you're from. He even knows the history of your city. You know, the first message as we get into chapter 2 is going to be in the city, to the city of Ephesus. That's the very city John shepherded, and it's it's the very city where he's living now at the time he's writing this book. And we're going to pick it up there next time. Until then, this is the perfect puzzle.